This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Dr. Rhonda Patrick, PhD, scientist at Children's Hospital, but also investigator of micronutrient deficiencies and the effects on metabolism, inflammation, DNA damage, and aging. We're going to talk a lot about what she's passionate about here with the vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids. It's a little sciencey, but nutrition and bodily health matters. We're going to tie it to brain function, which is the connection to what we actually teach here at The Art of Charm, and how ignoring your health will lead to consequences that impact mental performance. Talk a lot about inflammation, vitamin D, how to get it, omega-3 serotonin system, blood-brain barrier. It gets basically to the heart of the issue of why what you eat or what you're not eating, most likely, is going to affect your mental performance and uh, make you age faster. So if you know somebody who's your age and looks like crap, this is probably why. So... This will be interesting and enlightening for those of us who are into that sort of thing. If you're not super sciencey or if you don't feel like getting into the nutritional aspect, it's a little bit of a heady show. You might want to save this one for later, and, and uh, if that's not your type, if that's not your bag. So with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. We'll email you our Fundamentals Toolkit, covers everything from body language and nonverbal communication to persuasion, networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And of course, our weekly videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. I also invite you to join us in our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. This is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, and inspiring more people to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. And of course, if you want accountability, invite your friends as well, theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. Now, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. So tell us what you do in one sentence. I do research on the interface between how to optimize physical and mental performance and aging. Why are those two things connected? I didn't see that coming when, because yeah, physical and mental performance and aging. We just assume it goes down as you get older, right? It does, but you know, in some cases, things that optimize mental performance or physical performance can come at a trade-off for for long-term health and for the way you age. And so I sort of try to look at the overlap between those two fields of you know, peak performance, both mentally and physically, and also, you know, aging the best way you can, optimal, what's called health span, which is like, you know, basically the way you age. Right. Okay. Th that makes sense. And we've talked about aging on the show before with guys like Aubrey DeGray. Do you know about him? Yeah. I interviewed him on my podcast um, a few months ago. Okay. Yeah. Strange guy with a strange mission. That's pretty cool, right? For sure. Yeah. Him and I have uh, some differences in our in our beliefs in the field of aging. We also have some overlap as well. One of the things that you mentioned in your work and that we talked about pre-show is the effects of what you call micronutrient deficiencies. What is that? Why is that important? And is this new science? I mean, is this something we've just discovered? Micronutrients are around 30 to 40 essential amino acids, vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids. So they're definitely not new. I mean, we've we've known about vitamins and minerals and their importance in health for for over a hundred years. However, the way people think about them is sort of outdated, and the vitamin and mineral deficiencies most people think have been eliminated because people aren't walking around with severe diseases like scurvy, you know, which is a vitamin C deficiency. That's a pirate disease, right? <laughs> right, exactly. You see, it's a pirate disease. It doesn't exist anymore in the modern world. It's, it's really kind of what's in people's minds. And what I have been working on experimentally and also just by doing a lot of research in what has been put out there over the last you know, several decades is looking at how micronutrient inadequacies, so you're not in a severe deficiency. Deficiencies are often 
defined as a level that can ultimately lead to death, like scurvy. Eventually, it's going to kill you. But inadequacies refer to just not quite deficiencies, but you're just you're not getting enough of the vitamin and mineral to maintain long term health. And so the way I look at this is there are vitamins and minerals that are required for short term function for making sure that you are able to survive long enough to pass on your genes to reproduce. You know, that's that's an important part of evolution is to, you know, pass on our genes. And so if you have certain genes that are essential for short-term survival, for example, uh, blood clotting, you, you definitely want to make sure you're able to have your blood clot because if you are injured, you don't want to potentially hemorrhage and bleed out, which could ultimately kill you. So blood clotting is a very important short-term function. And blood clotting happens to require one very important micronutrient, vitamin K, which is found in dark green leafy vegetables. Of which I eat virtually none, right? <laughs> you and, and probably most of Americans these days. Although it's becoming a little more popular. I mean, people are drinking green smoothies and kale shakes and stuff like that. Yeah, we're going there. So these deficiencies have their effect on metabolism, inflammation, which I want to get to, DNA damage, aging. And uh, you speak a lot to a lay audience at foundmyfitness.com. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. But you're also, of course an academic and a scientist, a real one, at a hospital and a research institute, which is good because I feel like a lot of people talking about this are not only not scientists, but also are just not even doing their homework on this stuff as a layperson. Yeah. You know, we're, we live in, a, in an age now where we have access to too much information and, you know, not all the information at our fingertips is necessarily accurate. And there are a lot of people that are on the interwebs that are mm -hmm. giving health and nutrition and fitness advice and aren't necessarily qualified. And you don't necessarily have to be qualified in the sense where you have, you know, a bunch of letters after your name like I do, but you really should have a deep understanding of the biological mechanisms that are going on uh, if you're going to give out health advice. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those areas, one of many of the same type where a little knowledge can actually be harmful, whereas a lot of it is something that they don't have the patience to acquire. Yes, it's true. It takes a lot of time to figure out how things are working, especially when it comes to the human body. Extremely complicated and complex. And sometimes what is intuitive is, is actually um, not the correct explanation, <laughs> which is even more confusing. So, well, one of the things that we had mentioned pre-show is that the brain is really very intimately tied to the rest of the body in ways that we just continue to uncover and unravel and discover, and that there's connections between the brain and our immune system, and that's sort of like a new discovery, which for some people they go, well, duh, but we didn't know about that. We couldn't prove that. And so things like ignoring our health, having these micronutrient deficiencies, not getting enough exercise or whatever else can actually impact our mental performance and our ability to be effective as well, which I think is something we want to really get into here this hour. Yeah. And it's a fascinating field. And I think it's very important because most people don't think about, you know, what they're putting into their body or the way they're living their life as affecting their, their cognitive function. They usually think of, well, I'm born with these genes. I'm either smart or I'm not. And it's just not the case. You know, as you mentioned, the immune system is, we now know directly linked to the brain and, and, that was a real mind blower for, you know, not only people, lay audience, but scientists in general, because, you know, we've been trying to figure out that link for decades and have, have not found direct evidence showing that the immune system is directly linked to the brain. But we have known for quite a while that inflammation, which is sort of a byproduct of your immune system being overactive, and, you know, inflammation does affect cognitive function, and that has been known for some time. For example, if you are making more inflammatory cytokines for whatever reason, either you're stressed, stress hormone, cortisol for one, cortisol can increase the production of inflammatory cytokines. Cort cortisol being a stress hormone colloquially known, correct? Correct. What, is it, what are cytokines? I have no idea what that is. Cytokines are kind of like, it, you can think of it as like ammunition, like gunpowder 
uh, that your immune system's firing out there to kill off what it thinks is a foreign invader, like a bacteria or a virus. So like white blood cells? White blood cells fire off cytokines, yeah. Cytokines are like secreted from the white blood cells. Okay. And these cytokines can damage other tissues, but they also can cross over into the brain. So your brain is usually protected from molecules and other compounds entering it by something called the blood-brain barrier. That's very important. You know, you, you want to make sure that not everything's getting into your brain. Your brain is very important. Some of us spend a lot of time trying to make sure things get to our brain. <laughs> <laughs> Some of our mutual friends, in fact. Yes. Yeah, there is that. But things that are, you know, insidious, like these little cytokines that, you know, or you know, known to the layman as just inflammation or inflammatory mediators. These things are getting into the brain. They are depleting the brain of serotonin, which most people know as a neurotransmitter that regulates mood. Uh, well, it actually also affects learning and memory and well-being and uh, behavior, impulse behavior. So if you have something that's depleting your serotonin, not only does your mood become affected and you, you have a poor mood, but you also do worse on learning and memory tests, you're more impulsive, you know, and also have more anxiety, higher anxiety. So does this mean that anxious people, stressed out people learn worse than somebody who's happy or more relaxed? Well, it does and it doesn't. So it depends on what you're trying to learn. So studies have shown, at least in humans, that if you're stressed and you're making the stress hormone like cortisol, that can be beneficial for a certain type of learning or remembering something like an emotional type of memory. So something that's more autobiographical, uh, something that is, you know, involves interacting with other humans, you know, anything that's going to elicit emotional response, which, you know, typically happens to be something you're experiencing. Emotions and stress hormones can actually make those memories stronger. I mean, if you talk to people like in my parents' generation, like my mom and my dad both remember what they were doing when JFK was shot. That's what everybody remembers, like where they were on September 11th type stuff. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, in, in a sense, the stress hormones can help solidify those memories that are emotional, but it does the opposite for what are called like more neutral memories or uh, more of a declarative type of memory. So when you're trying to remember facts, when you're trying to remember pieces informa of information that are not like tied to an emotional response, you actually do poorly or you remember things more poorly in the context of being stressed. So if you're trying to like, you know, remember things like on this podcast that I'm talking about that may be new to you or, you know, any sort of test you're trying to take, or just anything you're learning in school for that matter. Uh, stress hormones also uh, have been shown to actually dampen the brain's ability to remember these things well. What is inflammation? I, I don't know what this is. It seems like a modern health boogeyman that's blamed for everything. <laughs> you know, Jordan, you nailed it because inflammation has recently been identified as the driver of the aging process and like, of sales for many people's ebooks <laughs> exactly yeah so what is inflammation inflammation really what it's referring to is a chronic activation of your immune system that's producing chemical warfare in your body by your immune system when i say chemical warfare it releases things like hydrogen peroxide or hypochlorite which is also known as bleach so it's releasing all these like very harsh chemicals that you and I know. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, bleach is, is pretty harsh. Hydrogen peroxide is pretty harsh. It does a lot of damage. These things are being released inside of your cells. Normally under, you know, if it's an acute condition, like you are being infected with rhinovirus or the influenza virus, you know, you want your immune system to release this stuff to kill it. But the problem is, is that our immune systems now are being active chronically in the absence of these types of viruses and bacteria. And the causes of, you know, there's many different causes of this. And this is really what inflammation is. Inflammation is just the overact of your immune system chronically releasing these toxic chemical warfare that damages everything inside of your cells from your DNA to the lipids, you know, the fat, proteins, everything inside of your cell. So it's just, it's wreaking havoc on your body and on your brain. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is basically, right, so if, if your white blood cells in your immune system are, are shooting cytokines everywhere, and those are kind of like bullets, like you said, ammunition, there's collateral damage whenever it's attacking a disease. But when it's just attacking for the sake of attacking and there's no disease to be had, it's just shooting up the place, trashing it. Yeah, exactly. It's shooting up the place and trashing it. And this is something that's happening at a low level, you know, in all of us. It happens with normal aging. But depending on our diet and our lifestyle, it can happen, you know, to a much, much greater degree or to a much, much lesser degree. And this has been shown, you know, a recent study came out that showed young people actually age at very different rates, you know, so. Well, you can see that. And maybe I'm just, maybe I'm conflating something, but I feel like there's other guys my age where I'm like, why are you bald and frail? We're 35. And this has been shown, like you said, you can see it in this study that I'm referring to. Their researchers looked at about 18 different biomarkers of aging. And what they found is that people in some cases were biologically, they were 10 years older or 10 years younger than their chronological age. And in fact, if uh, photographs were shown to other people to guess their age, what was really interesting was that these people would guess the person's biological age rather than their chronological age. So if they looked you know, younger, they would say, oh, they look like they're 20 years old when in fact they were 30. So they were biologically healthier and vice versa. You know? So you know, the fact of the matter is, is that our diet, what we're putting in our body and what we're not putting in our body is, is what's causing this inflammation. So 
inflammation sort of dot, dot, dot causes aging or, it, or exacerbates the process. Yeah, it does. It does exacerbate the process. And what most people don't realize is that the major source of inflammation in the body is actually coming from the gut. The gut is actually the major source of all immune cells. It has the highest concentration of immune cells in the entire body. Most people don't know that. Like if you were to ask a random person, where do you think most of your immune cells are? They might say, oh, in my blood or, you know, they'll say in my spleen uh, or thymus. But no, it's actually in your gut. And gut being lower intestine, larger intestine, colon, what else? Well, yeah. So they're in the between the small and the large intestine. So there's something called the pyre patch, which is where most of the immune cells are concentrated. And it's right at the very, very end of the small intestine and right at the beginning of the colon you know, towards the larger intestine. And that thing is just inflamed like crazy. Well, what's happening is, you know, the immune cells are there for a reason because your gut's exposed to the internal environment. When you eat food, you know, the food sees the, the inside of your body. And so if you're eating something that's potentially deadly or, you know, can be life-threatening, you want your immune system there and ready to react to it, right? Mm-hmm. Coli, for example. Yeah. The problem is also that our the immune cells in our gut are also regulated by our gut and by our gut health. So in addition to our gut having a lot of immune cells, our gut also hosts a large and very diverse variety of bacteria. A lot of people, it's kind of a buzzword now, the gut microbiome. I think Mm -hmm. most people are, are familiar with the fact that we have a lot of bacteria in our gut, good bacteria, bad bacteria. Well, these good bacteria are actually doing a lot of things for us, including making sure that our immune system is in check, making sure that we're not making so many of this chemical warfare, making sure that we're making the right types of immune cells. So in order for our gut to be able to do that properly, we have to feed the bacteria what they eat and what the bacteria eat is fiber. That's a big problem because our society, at least here in the United States, is uh, very fiber deficient. So fiber, you know, you can find fiber in foods like vegetables, legumes, beans, oats, nuts, seeds, fruits. Um, These things all are really high in fiber. What's not high in fiber is pizza, fast food, packaged food, canned food, refined carbohydrates, pastas. You know, those things are are low in, in fiber and it's what the majority of people are eating. The way to think about it is most of the bacteria that we have is in our colon, which is the, the very end of our gut. And when we eat food like fat or protein, which is you know not fiber, that gets digested in our upper, our smaller intestine. And so nothing makes its way to the colon. And so all the bacteria in the colon get hungry and they have to eat something. Nothing like so, a hungry colon. Yeah, hungry colon. And so what they end up doing is cannibalism. They end up eating part of the colon, which is called the gut barrier. So they start to eat this mucus lining that separates the immune cells in our gut from the bacteria. It also separates the food in our gut from our internal part of our our gut. And so they start to break that down and eat it because they're starving because they don't get fiber. I think it's a good way to think of it as a high protein, high fat diet. It can feed our cells, but it starves the bacteria in our gut and ultimately ends up causing the bacteria in our gut to break down the gut barrier which activates the immune system radically. The immune system starts firing off all this chemical warfare. And this just kind of chronically happens as we eat less and less fiber. I recently interviewed a couple of researchers at Stanford University, Justin and Eric and Sodenberg. They're doing a lot of very interesting research on the gut microbiome. And they were talking about how hunter-gatherer societies that are now living, you know, currently in like Tanzania, places like that, they get around 200 grams of fiber a day compared to the uh, standard American diet, which is less than 15 grams of fiber. Oh, wow. That's terrible. And fiber just being like vegetable fiber and fruits and stuff like that or whatever? Yeah, vegetable, fruit, and uh, beans, nuts, seeds. These are all sources of fiber. You know, So really increasing the intake of fiber is one of the main ways you can actually lower inflammation at the level of the gut. Got to clean the, the pipes out there with a little undigestible fiber. Can we just, what if we take the Metamucil or whatever? That's just straight fiber, right? Is that what that stuff is? Yeah, Metamucil is straight fiber. One of the caveats to just doing that is that there's many different types of fiber sources. Like 
the fiber source in a carrot and celery versus the fiber source in the apple peel versus the fiber source in a black bean or a lentil bean or in a walnut or a, in an almond, for example. They all are sources of fiber, but they're different types of fiber. And what researchers have been learning now is that the different types of gut bacteria you know, in our colon eat different types of fiber. And so I think it's really important to try to get more of a broad spectrum of fiber if you can, as opposed to just downing your Metamucil, which is just one type of fiber. Right. So that gut bacteria likes a little variety in its diet. They do. Yeah. And this has been shown to affect mood. It's been shown to affect cognitive function and anxiety. So eating vegetables and getting enough fiber for your colon can affect your brain function? Yes. So there's a direct line between the gut and the brain. Uh, This is called the vagal nerve. And it's literally just a nerve that connects the gut to the brain. And this has been a really fascinating field of research that we've been learning more and more over the past, you know, five years that the bacteria in our gut specifically can also affect, you know, anxiety, cognitive function, for example. So this has been done. Scientists have taken gut bacteria from mice that have been very anxious and transplanted it into to mice that are not anxious and it makes the mouse anxious and vice versa. So gut bacteria from mice that are not anxious, that are calm, can be transplanted into mice that are anxious and it can calm the mice and the mice become you know calmer and less anxious. And it's also been shown that giving people a certain strain of probiotic bacteria called lactobacillus rhamnosus which is thought to increase GABA levels. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It increases the GABA levels actually in the gut. And this somehow is able to, through the vagal nerve, send a signal to the brain to calm it. And so people that have taken these supplements become calmer and less anxious, which is very fascinating. It's a very fascinating field of research um, that we're sort of beginning to scratch the surface on. But I really think it sort of drives home how important inflammation is, gut health and this connection between the immune system, the you know, inflammation in our body, the gut bacteria and our cognitive function and our brain function. It's a growing field and I keep becoming more and more amazed at the new studies coming out. What about the serotonin system that you had mentioned earlier that that obviously affects mood, well-being, brain function? what things can we do to counteract damage or attack against our serotonin system? Because are there things we can be doing just with simple supplements or even vitamins or diet that we can do to counteract that? Because that seems like a really easy sort of switch or knob that we can turn externally without being super scientists or going to the doctor. Yes, actually there is. And I I actually published a study a couple of years ago where I found a connection between vitamin D and serotonin. So serotonin is made from the essential amino acid tryptophan. Uh, Tryptophan has to be transported into the brain. Once it gets into the brain, it's converted into serotonin. Well, what I found in my research was that the enzyme that converts tryptophan into serotonin in the brain is activated by vitamin D. So you know, vitamin D is extremely important. It's actually much more than a vitamin. It's, it's a steroid hormone. It gets converted into a steroid hormone inside of the body, which actually regulates about 5% of the human genome, which is a lot. When I say regulates, what I mean is it actually activates genes and it deactivates genes, you know, 5% of genes in our body and in our brain which is a very large percentage. But what I found was that it activates the gene that converts tryptophan into serotonin in the brain. And so one easy way that I think people can optimize their serotonin levels is to make sure they're getting enough vitamin D. And believe it or not, around 70% of the US population has inadequate levels of vitamin D, which are considered to be levels below blood levels below 30 nanograms per milliliter. I think the optimal range of vitamin D blood levels to have is between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter, which has been shown to be associated with lowest all-cause mortality, uh, meaning non-accidental deaths like 
cancer, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So people that have blood levels of vitamin D between 40 and 60 have the lowest all-cause mortality compared to people that have the lowest levels of vitamin D. What do you do to keep your vitamin D levels high? Do you just take supplements or is there... The thing about vitamin D is it's so important that we actually make it in our skin uh, when we're out in the sun and UVB radiation or UVB light hits our skin and we convert something in our skin into vitamin D3, which then gets released in the bloodstream and converted into the hormone. Well, the thing is, is that anything that blocks a UVB rays also blocks the ability of our body to produce vitamin D. So that could... So sunscreen is bad for you. Exactly. Sunscreen, melanin, which is the dark pigment that protects people from the burning rays of the sun, and actually age also. Um, a 70-year-old makes four times less vitamin D than their former 20-year-old self. So, you know, aging affects the way we're making vitamin D as well as where we live, latitude. So people that live in more northern uh, latitudes, so what's called above the 30-degree parallel from the equator, they actually about five to six months out of the year, UVB rays don't even hit the atmosphere in those regions. So being, you know, where I'm at in Southern California, it's not really a problem. I, you know, UVB rays are hitting, hitting the atmosphere, you know, 12 months out of the year. But people that are living in Minnesota, for example, they have to be very careful because, you know, five to six months out of the year, they can't even make vitamin D. So vitamin D supplementation is probably the easiest way for people to optimize their vitamin D levels. Typically, 1,000 IUs of vitamin D can raise blood levels by around five nanograms per milliliter. You know, so if you're someone that's deficient and you have blood levels, you know, that are like 20 nanograms per mil, you'd have to take at least 4,000 IUs to get up to 40 nanograms per milliliter. And that's what I take. I actually take a vitamin D supplement every day, which is 4,000 IUs. And I get my blood levels measured routinely and they hover around 50 to 55 nanograms per milliliter. So that's, I think, one really quick and easy way to optimize for, you know, serotonin. And also, like I said, vitamin D is regulating 5% of the human genome. It's doing a lot. It's, all, it's also been shown uh, that to inactivate an enzyme that produces the stress hormone cortisol. So having optimal levels of vitamin D will also make it so that you're not making so much cortisol, which, as we mentioned, is a problem. You know, the, the stress hormone cortisol causes inflammation. It, it has negative effects on cognitive function, performance, uh, and also on the aging process in general. Another thing that is very easy to optimize for serotonin and also for inflammation in general, because, as I mentioned, inflammation, the production of this chemical warfare these things get into the brain and they actually stop serotonin from being released. And so that's a problem as well. Well, it turns out that omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in fish, so the marine omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA have been shown to prevent these inflammatory molecules from inhibiting serotonin release. So they, and they also optimize for serotonin function. So eat lots of fish. Eat lots of fish. Or I actually really think taking fish oil supplements is prob it's probably on the top of my list of supplements to take. I take fish oil supplements every day. Um, I actually take quite a bit. I take two grams of EPA, which is actually the major form of fish oil that is dampening inflammation. It's preventing a lot of these immune cells from making all these inflammatory molecules. So I think that I, t I take two grams of EPA and about one gram of DHA, which is the other marine omega-3 fatty acid. That's very important for basically for your cell function. It's just a very important, about 30% of the brain is made of DHA. And, you know, so getting your DHA is very important for optimizing cognitive function. It's been shown, you know, to be important for making synapses, which are the connections between neurons that are important for learning and memory. Um, it's been shown to improve and enhance cognitive performance. Fish oil is, is on my, one of the, you know, like I said, one of the top of the supplements that I take. And I actually think the source of fish oil is very important. You want to get a, a high quality supplement. Something that's like mercury free and mercury all that jazz. Isn't, isn't all oxidized. And I, I personally like taking Nordic Naturals. I don't have any affiliation with them. I just, I like their product. 
They isolate their fish oil under nitrogen, which means no oxygen present, so they can't get oxidized, which is the major problem with fish oil is if it's oxidized, it becomes rancid, you know, rancid fat, very bad for you. Yeah. And you can actually pop open a fish oil capsule. By the way, fish oil should always be refrigerated, always, period. All fish oil, when you get it, should put it in the refrigerator. It slows the oxidation process. But you can pop open a fish oil pill and smell it. And if it's rancid, it'll smell really bad. Yeah, like rancid fish. Yeah, it'll smell rancid, like rancid fish. And if you smell that, toss out the fish oil container or bottle and just order a new one. So do you take the kind that's liquid form in a metal bottle? I take that. Or do you take tablets? I used to take the kind that I used to take Carlson's, which comes in a big bottle that you can like pour on a spoon. But I've switched since then because I became a little paranoid that every time I opened the container, oxygen was getting in there. And so I'd switch to the capsules, which are the fish oil capsule, because it's enclosed in the capsule. It's like not being exposed to oxygen every time I open the bottle to get a capsule out. Can't you just use a little pump top that would keep that from happening? Yeah, I guess theoretically a pump top should, you know, let less oxygen in. And I don't even, you know, I'm just, this is just my paranoid brain kind of. Well, you're the scientist. I don't even know if that's necessarily true. Uh, But like I said, I like Nordic Naturals just because the whole isolation process where, you know, like most fish oil that you buy out there on the market is molecularly distilled. And the reason it's distilled is because they want to purify away all the mercury and PCBs and all that contaminating those things that are contaminants that can cause harm. But the whole process of doing that distillation exposes the omega-3 fatty acids to oxygen and can make it more oxidized. The reason I like Nordic Naturals is because they do that entire process in a big nitrogen like container that like, is like pouring out nitrogen, which means there's no oxygen that can even, that's even in the atmosphere that they're doing the process, the isolation process in, which means no oxidation can occur. If there's no oxygen present, nothing can get oxidized. So I really like that company because they do that. And it's very unique to isolate it in, in under nitrogen conditions. And if you're wondering if the fish oil that you, you know, buy does that, you can call up the company and ask them. Usually they'll tell you. Are there other ways that we can lower cortisol? Yeah, there's another very interesting study that I recently came across and I've been getting into showing that early bright light exposure can dramatically lower cortisol levels. So we all have an internal clock inside of our cells and this internal clock regulates our metabolism, regulates our stress hormones, regulates the way we maintain muscle mass, our brain function, everything. I mean, it's just everything's being controlled by it. And this internal clock is regulated by when we are exposed to bright light. So the earlier we're exposed to bright light, that sets the clock that says start now. And we run on this, you know, 24 hour light and dark sort of cycle. And it tells us, you know, when to be active, when to be metabolically active, when to make stress hormones, when to have our brain function optimal, and then when to rest, when to repair, when to repair all the damage we've accumulated throughout the day. What has been shown um, recently is that humans that have been exposed to what's called 10,000 lux, it's a light measurement that's very equivalent to like bright light of the sun. When they're exposed to 10,000 lux for about seven hours a day, this can lower cortisol levels by up to 25% the next day. Making sure you're exposed to a lot of light is very important, not only for setting that internal clock, but for also making sure you're not making too much cortisol. As you can you know, think about our modern society, most people are indoors, we're working at our desks and our cubicle, we're not getting exposed to bright light, and especially if we're working a, a type of desk job. Bright light exposure early in the morning, and in fact, even up to two hours can be, one to two hours can be enough to set that internal clock. If you get just that internal clock going in the beginning of the day, early in the morning, that's enough to actually set the clock so that you're, you're good for the rest of the day. So wait, so we get up early and we, we do we just go outside or people buy those blue lights and stuff like that too? Going outside is the best, but you know, if you live in a place like the UK um, or, you know, in, in places like Norway or, you know, where, or Finland, where like, half of the year, it's like dark, gets dark at like two in the afternoon. (laughs) 
you can buy one of these, like they usually they're called like SAD lights, like the sad, you know, seasonal affective disorder lights, which if it's a sad light, most likely it's going to be at least 10,000 lux, which is the um, brightness of the study that I mentioned. I know people that live in the UK that actually use those lights and they say it works. Lots there on inflammation. I just wanted to debunk that or at least clarify it because it's so confusing and it's such a buzzword and people use it all the time. And it's like, don't eat peanuts because they're legumes and they'll cause inflammation and you'll die or whatever. And it's like there's all these sort of trendy diets and things like that that are supposed to be anti-inflammation. And it's kind of just dubious, right, with the wheat gluten and everything. You know, it's and they try to confuse people so that they buy the latest smoothie add-on or whatever, or their supplement and do with it. Obviously, fish oil is something that pretty much everybody agrees on, I would say. And uh, the vitamin D, do we have to take that multiple times a day, or can we just take a multivitamin in the morning that's liquid and get enough vitamin D? Yeah, you don't need to take vitamin D multiple times a day. I mean, taking, taking it once a day is plenty. And like I said, most people can increase their blood levels, you know, by five nanograms per mil if they take, you know, a thousand IUs a day. So 1000 IUs raises your blood levels by five, which if, if you're deficient is not enough and you have to probably take multiple, multiple thousand IUs. I take 4000 IUs. But I do want to mention that even if you're taking a vitamin D supplement, some people have a variation in one of their genes that converts vitamin D into the hormone and makes them do it less efficiently. And so if you never get a blood test and you're taking 4,000 IUs of vitamin D a day and you think, oh, I'm getting enough, and you never get a blood test, you may not realize that indeed you're one of those people. I've met, I mean, several people that I've met have had this issue. You'll actually have to take a much higher dose of vitamin D that normal people would not take. Now, vitamin D is one of those things where you don't want too much of it. You know, that's, that's the reason why I say blood levels between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter. It's really easy to get a blood test, ask your doctor. They're really, really cheap. I think that most people should just do one like that they do when they do their standard, you know, physical checkup. Vitamin D should be on that list where you get your vitamin D levels measured. But you, you can get too much vitamin D and too much vitamin D can be bad. So it's really important to not just go, oh, vitamin D is good. I'm going to mega dose, you know. Right. What happens if you eat too much vitamin D? Well, studies have shown that uh, blood levels above 60 nanograms per milliliter is associated with a higher all-cause mortality. And I think this largely has to do with the fact that vitamin D causes you to absorb about 40% more of your dietary calcium, which can be good. You know, vitamin D is you want your calcium, you need calcium, calcium is an important component for your bones, it's an important component for many different enzymes inside of your cells. However, if you are, you know, absorbing a lot of calcium, and you're getting a lot of calcium, and it's coming into your bloodstream, it can easily precipitate and form a little plaque in the blood vessels. And the calcium plaques in the blood vessels can, you know, be a very bad thing for, you know, your heart, you know, for blood flow to the brain, blood flow to the heart, you know, it's, it leads to atherosclerosis. Something that can, you know, prevent that from happening is making sure that the calcium you get goes to your bones, goes to your organs where, it, you know, it needs to. And something that is able to do that is a vitamin K2. Vitamin K2 activates genes inside of your, your vascular system and makes those genes pull calcium from your blood, you know, and bring it to your bones where it's supposed to go. Vitamin K2 is found in uh, fermented cheese. It's found in natto, but it's also a large community of bacteria in our colon, in our gut, make vitamin K2. And guess what? If you don't eat enough fiber, that bacteria that makes vitamin K2 rapidly gets depleted. So you want to make sure that you're getting your fiber to make sure you're, you have enough of the vitamin K2 producing bacteria. I personally take a vitamin K2 supplement from Natto as well, just to make sure that my calcium is going to where it needs to go. And there has been no toxicity associated with vitamin K2 supplementation. So we're talking a lot about gut bacteria and fermented stuff. Do, are cultures that eat a lot of fermented stuff, are they generally healthier? I mean, I'm thinking like Koreans eat a crap load of kimchi. Chinese people are eating a lot of fermented stuff. It, just 
Russians and Norwegians and th- people like that are eating fermented stuff all the time. Yeah, well, actually, the Japanese eats the the natto, which is a fermented soybean. Uh, Japanese children, I mean, they, it's like if you look at the breakfast that these children in Japan are getting, I mean, natto, for anyone that's eating or the, that's trying natto, the fermented soybean, it's like disgusting, uh, gooey. <laughs> I mean, it, you should try it at some point, Jordan. I mean, it's really... <laughs> it sounds vile, yeah. But I like weird stuff. Like, I'll eat kimchi. I'll just shovel that in. Oh, I love kimchi, Yeah. Kimchi is another one that, like you said, in Korea. But, you know, the Japanese um, actually have the longest lifespans out of any culture. You know, so if you're looking at, you know, lifespan as according to country, Japan's number one. They have the longest lifespan compared to anyone in the world. So and they also eat a lot of fish, omega-3 fatty acids. But, yeah, you know, I think that's a, a great point. It'd be kind of interesting to see a study done that looks at different populations that eat a variety of fermented types of foods and rinse their lifespan. What about Japanese people in America, though? Are they just as unhealthy as the white people? Because that's the question, right? That's what would separate genetics from, I guess, environment. Right. Well, what's really interesting is that if you look at the lifespan of Japanese people each year, the World Health Organization um, and some other organizations put out data that they've compiled on people, you know, on lifespans according to the country. And if you look at Japan, their lifespan is gradually going down as they have become more westernized. You know, in Japan now, you know, there's a lot more McDonald's, you know, there's a lot more fast food chains that are that weren't as common a couple of decades ago. It's kind of interesting that their lifespans actually been gone down on a national level. I'm not sure if that's the case, but I'm sort of inferring yeah, one possibility. But yes, people that do move to the United States from other cultures like Japan, they can easily become type 2 diabetic as they become exposed to eating more processed foods, to eating more fast foods, more refined carbohydrates, just junk food, uh, things like that. Now, one of the things we talked about that was interesting pre-show is is how using things like saunas can improve anxiety and help us deal with stress better. Why does, how does that work? Yeah, for anyone that's listened to me or heard me, I, I've been speaking about the sauna for a couple of years. I actually became very interested in it from a personal experience that I had. When I was in you know, graduate school, it was a very stressful time for me. I got my PhD in biomedical science and I joined this very high stress lab where it's like, not only did I have all this coursework and classes and, you know, these A's I was trying to get, but I also had a bunch of experiments I was doing and trying to troubleshoot and, you know, science is hard. So I was very stressed. And what I noticed, I lived across the street from a YMCA and I started going and using their sauna in the mornings before I went into the lab and started doing my experiments. And what I started to notice was that my stress and my anxiety level was completely affected. I became so much more comfortable and less stressed. And I was able to actually deal with stress better as I you know, started frequently using the sauna. And it was so noticeable to me that I was like, what's going on? I need to figure this out. Uh, so I started to dig into the scientific literature to try to understand like, how this could possibly be affecting my anxiety and how it could help me deal with stress better. And what I found was very interesting. So when you are exposed to the heat, whether that's from a sauna or a steam room or you're sitting in a, you know, a jacuzzi or you are doing an intense workout where you are elevating your core body temperature, like an endurance run or a bike ride, and you start to feel really hot. The same time that you're feeling that heat stress, you also start to feel uncomfortable. It's, it's kind of, you're physically uncomfortable where you're like, oh, I want to stop doing this. I want to stop running. I want to stop. I want to get out of the sauna. It's too hot. You know, that discomfort sort of feeling. Well, it turns out that discomfort feeling is actually part of the brain getting activated. And this part of the brain is part of the opioid system. And so the opioid system consists of the feel-good opioid called the mu opioid, which most people associate with like when endorphins are released, 
they act on a, a new opioid receptor in your brain and you feel really good. Morphine derivatives, all those things affect that same pathway. But there's also the counter to the feel-good opioid pathway, and that's called dynorphin. And dynorphin is that it's an opioid that is responsible for a dysphoric feeling that accompanies, you know, being hot or, you know, exercising really hard or even eating spicy foods. And the, the dynorphin affects a receptor in the brain called kappa opioid. It's a counter to the mu. When you're hot and you sit in the sauna, dynorphin levels rapidly rise. And so you start to feel really, really uncomfortable. And anyone that's sat in the sauna or in a hot tub knows exactly what I'm talking about. Well, the reason for that is the reason you're making the dynorphin is because dynorphin actually cools the body. In fact, when you inject rats with dynorphin, it rapidly cools their body temperature. So, you're, so your body's responding to the elevations in the core body temperature to the heat stress by trying to cool itself. And the way it does that is by making dynorphin. Turns out, well, dynorphin also makes you feel really uncomfortable. But here's the part that where it gets really interesting is that the activation of the kappa opioid receptor by that uncomfortable dynorphin opioid causes the feel-good endorphin system, the mu opioid receptors, you make more of them and they become sensitive to endorphin, meaning that you know, the next day or later on that day when you're out of the sauna or two days later, anytime you release a little bit of endorphin, whether that's from, you know, kissing someone you like, or because you got a good grade, or you saw a friend that you hadn't seen, or you talked to your mom on the phone, or whatever it is that's causing you to release a little bit of endorphin, all of a sudden becomes that much more potent, because you've activated that uncomfortable dynorphin pathway. So, I became very interested in that because it's like, oh, yeah. the more the activation of this uncomfortable feeling, that stress response, you know, sitting there and making more dynorphin, that dysphoric feeling had a positive effect on the feel-good endorphin pathway in the brain. And I was like, that must be it. That must be why I was so dramatically affected by using the sauna. So what do we do to take advantage of this? Well, I think that the sauna has a lot of positive health benefits in addition to helping helping people i think cope with anxiety and you know helping them being able to deal with stress and handle stress better is a, the way i like to put it i think using the sauna two to three times a week is a really really good and that's something that i've you know like i said this is firsthand experience using the, the sauna two to three times a week absolutely made a difference in my ability to handle other stressful life events better, you know, but the sauna also has a very interesting effects on aging. In fact, a very recent study was published in the Journal of American Medicine that was published in Finland and showed that, or, you know, in a study population of around 2000 middle-aged men, those men that use the sauna two to three times a week had a 24% lower all-cause mortality and those men that use the sauna four to seven times a week had a 40% all-cause mortality compared to men that only use the sauna one time a week. So there was sort of you know this dose-dependent response, meaning the more times that they use the sauna, the lower you know all-cause mortality or the lower their risk of dying from any non-accidental disease was at any time, which is very interesting because it's you know affecting longevity. One of the ways I think it's doing that is the sauna can robustly activate a whole stress response system in the body through activating something called heat shock proteins. So when you're exposed to heat from the sauna, these heat shock proteins get very robustly activated. And heat shock proteins are doing everything from becoming a very potent antioxidant in the body, you know, to lowering inflammation, to, to, to also preventing muscle atrophy which is another very interesting effect of the sauna. In fact, it's been shown like if you expose a mouse to 30 minutes of like a little sauna, a little sort of heat treatment that's kind of equivalent to what we would call a sauna, and then you make them immobile for seven days, that the mice that are exposed to the sauna, they can regrow their muscle like 30% faster 
than the mice that are immobile and aren't exposed to the sauna. And that was shown to be dependent on the activation of heat shock proteins. So these heat shock proteins actually prevent your muscle from degrading proteins. All right, back to the show. Maintaining your muscle mass is also something that's, that becomes more and more difficult. By the time we hit middle age, we lose on average between 0.5 and 1% of our muscle mass per year. And that just becomes accelerated as we get older. So, and, and having a higher muscle mass, you know, prevents you from falling and breaking a bone. It just, it, it protects from frailty, which is a, a major cause of mortality as, as humans get older. So the sauna has a very robust effect on maintaining muscle mass. It also increases growth hormone. In, in fact, in, in some cases it can increase it by extremely high levels, anywhere between seven to 16 fold, depending on how frequent the sauna is used. Growth hormone's also been shown to prevent muscle atrophy. So there's a lot of really interesting and positive effects from, from heat stress from using the sauna. Of course, there's all the one that everyone always talks about, which is when you, you know, the sauna causes you to sweat. And one of the reasons it causes you to sweat is because you're trying to cool yourself. Well, it just so happens that um, a lot of toxic chemicals that we're exposed to in our environment, like mercury, um, PCBs, uh, bisphenol, um, BPA, you know, all these, these types of, uh, chemical products that we're, we're exposed to actually we sweat out. Interesting. Right. You sweat it out. So you do sweat out toxins essentially. You do. And that's one thing that I, I like, it's something I've, I have focused on the least in terms of the, the benefits from the sauna, because I feel like that's the like only thing that everyone else in the world focuses on. And, you know, arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury, they're all excreted through sweat. And, you know, whether that's sweat from moving, you know, exercise or sweat from using a sauna, which really makes you sweat, you know, it, it gets dumped. But one thing to keep in mind is that you're also sweating out good things like electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, chlorine. You know, these also are excreted through the skin when you're sitting in the sauna. So you want to make sure after you do a sauna session that you rehydrate getting your electrolytes by, you know, either coconut water, it's been shown, or also like I like to do is uh, I make a smoothie where I kind of blend up, you know, spinach and kale and some chard, which has very high in sodium, potassium, magnesium. They're all very high in in, uh, green leafy vegetables. And I'll drink that. So heat stress is serious business. And, you know, so obviously if you're going to do it, make sure you do it wisely and you're not dumb. Also, you don't want to drink alcohol while you're in the sauna ever. Right. Yeah. That can lead to serious, serious problems like death. So, so take vitamin D, take fish oil, go to the sauna two to three times per week. Don't do it drunk. And get your fiber. And get your fiber in there to feed that gut bacteria and eat some kimchi. Well, thank you so much, Rhonda Patrick. Of course, we'll link to your stuff in the show notes as well. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. Your sciency brain comes in handy here at The Art of Charm. Great. Awesome. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. A lot of science in there. Definitely interested in taking a little vitamin D, taking some good fish oil. I've got that unlocked. But uh, the sauna idea is pretty cool. Who knew that the sauna could actually not only improve immune function but brain function and also get rid of some toxins? I mean, you kind of think about those kind of things, but you never really think about it being backed by science. And you certainly don't think about it being that beneficial. I just thought it was something that, frankly, old people did because it was a, it was something else to do after you worked out and, and they like putting themselves through hell for some reason and sweating a lot. I, I've never been a huge fan, but uh, it does feel good. It does pump up the endorphins. Sometimes, though, it's just agonizing for seemingly no reason. So I'm definitely going to check that out. I encourage you to as well. I'd love to hear what your experience is with this and whether or not there's other folks that do this as part of their sort of health ritual or regimen. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dr. Rhonda on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as her resources over at Found My Fitness. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. Come say hi. Bootcamp details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it, get in touch ASAP and plan ahead. Review us in iTunes. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, it helps keep us up in the ranks so other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice they need. And it's also the best way to support the show 
other than purchasing products and training from us. Special thanks to both Jasons and to Fogarty for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week. Leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.